0: Welcome to the Mind and Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Schaefer. Jonathan has a PhD in clinical psychology, and he is currently a research psychologist at the University of Minnesota Institute of Child Development. His research focuses largely on the relationship between people's environments and the influence that has on their mental health. He has conducted a number of longitudinal studies using cohorts of identical and fraternal twins, which allows him to tease apart the relative role of genetics and different environmental factors in different psychiatric outcomes. My conversation with Jonathan focused mainly on recent twin studies that he has done looking into the relationship between adolescent cannabis or marijuana use and psychosis. The main question posed by this work is whether or not there is likely a causal link between chronic cannabis use in adolescence and symptoms of psychosis later in life, which has been an area of unresolved controversy in the research world for some time. We talked about what psychosis is and what factors are linked to it. We discussed historical work on the relationship between cannabis use and psychosis, and Jonathan described the results of his recent twin studies and what they actually mean. As always, if you enjoy the content that you find on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. There are a few different ways you can support the podcast. One is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The other is to subscribe and to like the videos on the YouTube version. And the other way is to sign up for either my free weekly Mind & Matter newsletter on Substack or to become a paid subscriber, which is $5 per month and gets you early access to shows and other subscriber-only content. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Jonathan Schaefer. Jonathan Schaefer, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm excited to be here. Can you give everyone a quick intro in terms of who you are and what you actually do professionally?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my name is John Schaefer. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the moment um, at the University of Minnesota Institute for Child Development. And what I do is I conduct research on the relationship between uh, environmental exposures, which uh, is just a term that I use to encompass both kind of lived experiences that people have and things in their environment that they come into contact with, uh, the relationship between those types of things and their later mental health.
0: Interesting. And so, what's your what's your training and background in? Are you a psychologist?
1: Yeah. So I have my PhD in clinical psychology from Duke University. Um, i have a recently minted PhD. I got that in uh, 2019, um, and then I have been at the University of Minnesota for
0: postdoc uh, pretty much since that time. Interesting. So what um, what's just at a very very high level. What have you been studying? What have you been interested in studying? And how did you sort of get into this as an interest area?
1: Yeah, uh, good question. So my research now, um, I said I'm I'm interested in environmental exposures. So that's a broad category. Um, So kind of during my graduate and postdoctoral research careers, I've studied a number of different kinds of exposures. So in graduate school, I did research on the relationship between victimization and mental health. So things like uh, maltreatment, um, victimization by peers, uh, sexual abuse, victimization by um, like crime victimization, uh, among other things. Um, And then also published a few papers with colleagues in grad school looking at the effects of exposure to uh, lead levels in early childhood Hmm. and uh, air pollution as well um so those you can look up and find under my name easily enough but uh as a postdoc what my research is focused on instead is specifically the effects of cannabis exposure um so this is a topic that I got interested in after starting my postdoc um I chose my postdoc for reasons that we might get into later but essentially uh I, I chose it kind of for um Uh, shall we say, like methodological uh, uh, synergy between what I was doing as a postdoc and what I was doing as a graduate student. Um, And it just so happens that the data that I have available to me as a uh, postdoctoral fellow um, are particularly uh, centered around uh, substance use and cannabis use in particular. So it's been a, a great position and has given me access to a lot of really great resources in terms of the uh, the data to answer these types of questions. Um, and of course the fact that, you know, the U S is seeing this, um, this moment, this sort of sweeping, uh, sea change in cannabis legalization means that these types of questions have, uh, captured a lot of people's interests, including, um, lawmakers and policymakers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, some of the, um, recent work you've done was piquing my interest because, I I work in the cannabis industry, so this is sort of uh, something I've thought about a lot. And this is something that a lot of people have had top of mind for for quite a while, actually. What is the relationship between brain development and substance use? In particular, uh-huh. we're going to talk about cannabis today, but as a general topic, there's obvious importance to this area, right? What you know, whether or not something can impact brain development is, is critical to understand. And, and as you mentioned, this sort of wave of legalization that's been happening the last number of years really sort of brings this to the forefront because, um, you know, for obvious reasons, more more people are now having the opportunity to be exposed to and, and to choose to use something like cannabis. And so it makes perfect sense that we should be very careful to understand exactly what the effects on the brain and on health are of cannabis, especially if you're starting at an early age. That's so, right. So the main thing I think we're going to talk about today has to do with your most recent research, which is more or less centered on this question of does using cannabis in adolescence increase the odds of developing psychosis? And I would love if you could start off by just defining uh, dividing some of the territory here for us. So let's start with psychosis. What exactly is psychosis as defined by a psychologist? Sure. Um,
1: so just before I provide that definition, I also want to mention that my work's looked at actually a bunch of different mental health outcomes. Psychosis mm. is kind of one of many. Um, my most recent paper focused on psychosis. Uh, and the reason for that is because... Um, there's observational epidemiological research out there that suggests the relationship between cannabis and psychosis might be particularly strong. So what is psychosis? Psychosis is a um, condition of the mind. It's a uh, kind of a constellation of symptoms, but the, the main um, I guess, textbook definition would be a state of mind where the, the patient or the individual is having trouble uh, trouble telling what is real and what is not real. So this is where you see symptoms like delusions and hallucinations, delusions being kind of persistent uh, false beliefs on the one hand, and hallucinations would be experiencing um, kind of sensory input that is not there. Um, Those are kind of two of the core symptoms of, of psychosis. And then you can also see additional things in some individuals like incoherent speech, inappropriate behavior, um, and oftentimes that can really um, mess up a person's life, even if the uh, experience of psychosis itself is a relatively uh, transitory one.
0: Hmm. And, and could, you get, could you give us some specific examples that, that people might have heard of that are clear examples of a psychotic state? Sure. Um,
1: so I spent two years uh, after undergrad, I worked in a a lab that was studying schizophrenia specifically. Um, And it was a really fascinating job because one of the things that I was responsible for was administering cognitive tests to both individuals with a schizophrenia diagnosis, and then uh, healthy family members um, and siblings of of these folks, uh, as well as healthy controls. Um, And so in in doing that job, I, I kind of got to encounter a lot of different a lot of different people, a lot of patients and a lot of different manifestations of of kind of what we think of as psychosis. So um, a few that, uh, you know, have stuck with me over the years, is I remember one uh, individual um, kind of was operating under the persistent belief that he was in a uh, romantic relationship with Emma Watson, the uh, Harry Potter actress um and you know that in and of itself might be possible <laughs> or perhaps provable um but you know there were also other beliefs attached to that which was that she would send him kind of secret messages uh you know uh, reinforcing her affection for him that she would break into his uh room on the impatient ward at night and leave him sort of special messages that only he could see he, she, she would move maybe You know, his his clock on his bedside table, ever so slightly, so he would know that she had been there. Um, I met another individual who, uh, another example of the delusion, believed um, that he was uh, an angel um, from a a kind of different dimension and was, um, you know, being sent here for some sort of special purpose. Um, Third individual that I'll always remember. had the sort of fixed belief that everyone around him could read his thoughts, hmm. uh, which made interacting with him very uh, challenging, um, especially uh, giving cognitive tests to someone who's kind of operating with that belief in mind. Um, and hallucinations also can take kind of as, as varied a form as, as delusions. Um, I would say auditory hallucinations, I believe are the most common. So that would be you know, hearing things that aren't there, such as someone calling your name or um, hearing voices, um, sometimes which can tell you uh, nice or neutral things, but especially when they become problematic are often saying um, you know, mean or threatening things, um, but that you can see a, kind of a whole gradient there um and then on this more extreme end you can even you know have folks reporting visual hallucinations which is seeing individuals who aren't there um uh, other kind of perceptual abnormalities the walls moving in ways that they shouldn't um insects on areas or objects or people that no one else can see Uh, so it's really it's a a pretty wide spectrum um, just kind of united by these this this sort of core definition
0: Mm -hmm. I see. So is it fair to say that maybe a general way to think about this is that psychosis or psychotic state is when something's going on in the brain such that the person's thoughts and behaviors and perceptions just are not matching up with their sensory environment?
1: Yeah, I think that would be fair. Um, Delusions, you could argue, is maybe less close to sensory input than hallucinations. Um, I, I think it'd be fair to say there are probably multiple kind of separable brain mechanisms going on that contribute to what we generally call psychosis. Uh, but but kind of like you're saying, the, the core feature is this disconnect between the reality that the person is perceiving and the reality that kind of everyone else is perceiving.
0: I see. And then, you know, the other thing I think I want to make clear here is, so you've already told us that psychosis is this sort of constellation of things? It can manifest in different ways in different people. Mm-hmm. Is it also fair to say that this is also, we should also think about this as a kind of a spectrum, meaning that, you know, on, on one side of the spectrum could be full blown psychosis in a severe case of schizophrenia, say, but on the other side could just be, you know, little sort of micro, micro psychotic symptoms that even normal people experience all the time. I think we've, we've all had the experience of, you know, oh, I swore I just heard my name, but but no yeah. one said it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, and, and that experience is ubiquitous enough that if that happens to you, you know, once, twice, a couple dozen times over the course of over the year, probably nothing to be concerned about. Um, so yeah, so there's uh, a, a branch of psychological research that's called taxonometrics, where uh, people look at uh, kind of psychiatric disorders or symptoms, and they try to answer the question using these sophisticated statistical methods of whether these these constructs are actually separable categories of experience that have distinct kind of fixed boundaries to them or just kind of broad continua where people kind of slide from one end of the scale to the next. Um, both like, both between individuals, meaning that like different people will fall at different points along the scale. And then even within an individual, you know, they might be at a different point on this, this spectrum, the psychotic spectrum or any other spectrum um, over the course of their lives. And by and large, what, what taxonometric research tells us is that the vast majority of mental health problems do fall or uh, are, are, are more kind of appropriately conceptualized as, as being continuous in nature. And so psychosis is no exception.
0: Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is worth clarifying up front. So multiple times I've had the experience where I'm talking to a non-scientist or non-psychologist usually, but they'll be interested in this general topic and they'll say, um, you know, say that they've read, they've tried to read a scientific paper and it could be about cannabis or psychedelics or, or some, something like that. And they'll read something like, you know, cannabis um, is a cicatomimetic drug. And they'll say to themselves, wait a minute, like I know a lot of people that smoke cannabis and that it doesn't turn you schizophrenic, like Mm -hmm. you don't go into psychosis while you're high. So what exactly does a term like that mean when we say that a substance can be psychotomimetic?
1: So psychotomimetic really just means can cause um, another term you might hear is like psychotic like symptoms. Uh, So a a relatively common, although not ubiquitous side effect of uh, cannabis consumption, at least for some people or at some dosage, can be paranoia. Mm -hmm. Um, So people will report, um, you know, if they're consuming a lot of cannabis, particularly if they're doing it maybe through edibles or more intense methods of administration, Uh, that they sort of hit maybe a a, a relaxed kind of slightly euphoric feeling at the outset, but as the dose builds and builds and builds, um, uh, you know, they find their, 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 um, their affect getting a lot more anxious. And then accompanying that might be lots of anxious thoughts. Like everyone's looking at me or like, Oh, I feel weird. I wonder if people notice. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and kind of, if you push that to an extreme degree, that, that starts to resemble, um, Some of the the paranoid thinking or processes that you might see in someone with a diagnosable uh, psychotic illness.
0: I see. So so it kind of does make sense. Like, even if you just think about normal paranoia, you know, if you smoke some weed or ingest some other drug and you get paranoid, not that you're having like a full on true psychotic break, but you just think, hey, everyone's looking at me, but but they're actually not. That's a psychosis like symptom. Right, and of course the, the difference, right, between a sort of transitory psychotic
1: state uh, and a psychotic disorder is that in one case, the effects or the, the kind of causes of the transitory psychotic state are very clearly the substance that the person just ingested. And those symptoms only happen when the person is using that substance. Whereas in the case of the psychotic disorder, uh, it is uh, more repeated, um, more all-encompassing and impairing, and it can be exacerbated when a person is using substances, but then also the symptoms have to be present during periods where they're not using as well.
0: I see. So, so it is true that, that certain substances, um, the acute consumption of them, when you're in the in- intoxicated state, can produce mild or transient psychotic-like experiences, that's right. I've also read that, you know, substances can also, including cannabis, can also make the uh, ongoing chronic symptoms of someone with a psychotic disorder worse. Is that is that true? And, and to what extent do we know that?
1: Yes. So that's on my specific area of research because I'm focusing on these kind of large population-based studies rather than studies of, uh, you know, say, in patients with a psychotic disorder, but, but my understanding of that research is that that is true. So if you do have a psychotic illness, generally it is a good idea to stay away from these psychomimetic substances because it can exacerbate symptoms, bring on psychotic breaks, and it might even affect you kind of more intensely than others given that you, you're, you're, your brain sort of in its natural state already has a kind of predisposition towards going uh, down these,
0: these sorts of neural pathways. Got it. So we've sort of established what psychosis is. We've talked a little bit about schizophrenia. The other thing I want to do up front is talk about cannabis use disorder. So what exactly is that and how do we how do we define it and how common is it?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So the, the kind of technical definition of cannabis use disorder has changed slightly over the years. Um, so in the earlier versions of DSM, we saw it bifurcated in cannabis abuse versus cannabis dependence, And when you're talking about abuse versus dependence, um, the sort of general distinction is is your use of the substance uh, causing problems for you in kind of daily living? Is use of your substance causing legal problems? Is it causing role impairment? Um, Is it you know, causing difficulties for you, whereas dependence typically refers to the more kind of physiological set of symptoms. So we think about things like tolerance, needing more and more of the substance to kind of get the same effect or uh, withdrawal symptoms. So when you kind of take the substance away, someone starts to uh, experiencing kind of ill effects from just the lack of the substance being there. Um, so cannabis is an interesting one because the, the withdrawal effects are in general, not nearly as pronounced as they are for other substances like alcohol in particular. Um, so if you're extremely alcohol dependent and alcohol is withdrawn too abruptly, that can actually cause someone to you know, need to be hospitalized and, and you know, die at the very extremes. Whereas cannabis, uh, that is not, not really possible with just the way that um, cannabis is Uh, chemistry works. Um, But sort of those two uh, conditions have been subsumed now under the general heading of a cannabis use disorder. So DSM-5, the most recent version of the Diagnostic um, and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, no longer really distinguishes between abuse and dependence. They've just taken symptoms from both categories and kind of put them under a, a sort of general subheading. And I think the reason for that is because usually when you have abuse symptoms, you very often will have the dependent symptoms as well. They, they often go kind of hand in hand.
0: Mm-hmm. So, this general topic of the relationship between cannabis use and psychosis has a fairly lengthy history. Um, people have cared about this for a while. I think there's been you know, a pretty good amount of research on it. What's sort of made it difficult in my perception is that um, on the one hand, it's just sort of very difficult to get a truly definitive study out there. So like no study is perfect. Um, a lot of it's based on correlation and you can't really establish causality and we're going to get into that. Yeah. But then the other thing too is, you know, there's, there's sort of people with uh, with a leg in the race, right? There's some people that, that really want to believe one one way and some people that really want to believe the opposite way on this topic. And I think that that has also uh, contributed to how, I mean, is it fair to say this is an, an area that's been controversial in the literature?
1: Uh, yes, I, I would agree with that. Um, and because, yeah, like, like you're saying, there are definitely individuals out there with kind of a vested interest in how the research on... This potential link shakes out, right? If you're a if you're a manufacturer of cannabis products, uh, it's really good news if the uh, kind of link between cannabis and severe mental health problems like psychosis uh, turns out to be spurious. Whereas, if you're on the other side of the equation, um, you have objections to cannabis for I don't know personal re- reasons, religious reasons. Um, uh, perhaps some kind of financial stake on the opposing side. Yeah, you, you'd like to see very much the opposite.
0: Could you give us maybe uh, a synopsis or, or some kind of general overview of what well, you know? What how has the research on this potential link between psychosis and cannabis? How has it progressed over the last I don't know ten or twenty years? And, and what are what have the main schools of thought been? What have the major what have the major results been? And what have been their sort of gaps and limitations so far? Sure
1: so research on uh cannabis and psychosis by and large has occurred um well i guess first we can bifurcate it into observational research and experimental research so in experimental research you can uh do kind of the 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 gold standard type of study for supporting what we call causal inference which is uh kind of making sure that uh, manipulation or exposure X, in this case cannabis itself, is, is actually driving your outcome Y. So in a, in a randomized controlled study, you can do that. You have a really strong ability to approach causal inference because you can take people, you can randomly assign them to have a little cannabis or THC versus not, and you can kind of examine the effects. And so the experimental literature on cannabis has been really useful as far as understanding the um, acute consequences of cannabis use. So this is where we get the knowledge that, you know, cannabis is associated with, Uh, these short-term psychotic symptoms in a number of individuals. It's how we know that cannabis influences hunger, sleep, uh, pain, sensitivity, uh, and all these different types of of physiological functions. Uh, A limitation of the experimental literature is you, uh, you can't give cannabis to human beings for prolonged periods of time. Uh, because of possible ethical issues or the possibility that you're actually doing people some harm, right? Mm -hmm. So all the research we have on cannabis's long-term effects is either coming from observational studies of human beings, meaning uh, cannabis exposure is not happening randomly in the population. Uh, It's happening because people being studied are either choosing or not choosing to use cannabis, and they're, they're choosing the extent to use it as well. Uh, Or we have uh, data from animal models where researchers can expose these uh, these organisms to kind of as much cannabis as they want for as long as they want and uh, observe the effects. And and in most cases, try to extrapolate those to human beings. Um, So those have kind of been the the two types of research that have dominated research in this this space. And of course, um, animal models of psychosis are, are, are difficult and not uh, an exact match to psychosis of the human condition. So I would say most of the influential research on uh, this cannabis psychosis link has come from this kind of observational epidemiological tradition where they're assessing, you know, groups of people, say adolescents um, for their cannabis use in early life And they follow them into adulthood or into at least late adolescence periods of life where psychotic illnesses are more likely to develop or manifest. And they're asking the question, you know, is it the case that, you know, adolescents or folks who are using more cannabis at baseline are more likely to develop these types of long-term psychotic illnesses in uh, later life or adulthood?
0: Mm -hmm. So to summarize my understanding here, two major types of studies. One is the experimental study. The other is the observational experimental studies. You you could actually then bifurcate again. So you've got animal studies where, you know, we can take lab rats or lab mice or whatever, and we can do real causal studies. We can give them well-defined doses of drugs. You know, the rats living in a controlled environment its entire life. We don't have to worry about all of those confounders that we have to for these other studies. But at the end of the day, you really can't know if the results you see in a lab animal are ultimately going to translate to a human being. That's right. On the human experimental side, you know we can do clinical trials, interventions like that. Those are good, you said, for acute effects because you know we can have someone come in today, give them cannabis or, or give them some other experimental manipulation and measure what's happening right then and there, but you can't really do a 20-year-long experiment on the chronic effects because it's simply not feasible to do that.
1: Yes. And particularly in, you know, children and adolescents, you know, Mm -hmm. individuals who can't give their own consent to participate in those types of, those types Mm -hmm. of studies.
0: So, so that leaves us with these observational studies where you can follow people in the long term, but you've got this other issue where you just cannot control for all of the variables that one would like to control for. And so, you know, this, this is obviously where we're going with this in your work. Can you summarize like the history of the observational studies so far? And, and what have the results tended to be and what 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 have the uh, the gaps and the controversies sort of always been that have have haunted this area
1: Yeah, great question So the, the observational research on cannabis and psychosis I, I think it's fair to say has been pretty pretty dark consistent um, so you'll have different cohorts from different areas of the world and people will pretty uniformly find uh, that individuals who are reporting more cannabis use at you know, baseline time point A are also more likely to be diagnosed with a psychotic illness or are more likely to report scientific symptoms at uh, follow-up time point B. And that tends to be true um, regardless of uh, how you're assessing psychosis. So it's true if you're asking people to self-report on their symptoms. It's also true if you're looking at um, medical diagnoses made by trained health professionals. Uh, there are medical registry studies that have come out of the scandinavian countries where they're able to uh, kind of make those linkages um, by actually pulling people's medical records um, in extremely large uh, population samples Um, but kind of the issue like you alluded to is cannabis use is non-random in the population so there there are uh, characteristics that uh, maybe are not universally shared by individuals who use cannabis, but are, are more common in folks who use cannabis and particularly those who use it heavily and from an early age. And so the big limitation of this uh, these uh, observational studies, of course, is it's, it's impossible to know really uh, whether it's cannabis itself that seems to be driving this association or whether it is um, other unmeasured factors that these folks using a lot of cannabis and particularly using early share in common that also makes them more vulnerable to psychotic illnesses later in life.
0: Hmm. So the literature has been fairly consistent overall from these observational studies over the years. Um, in general, the the sort of key result I guess being that there's a relationship between cannabis use and psychosis, in particular. If you are heavily using cannabis starting early in life, there seems to be uh, a fairly clear signal there that it's associated with an increased risk of developing some kind of psychotic disorder. But basically what you're saying is because cannabis use, especially heavy use, is not random, this is a classic case where we really don't know if correlation is telling us there's some underlying causation or whether or not it's a coincidence and there's something else. So I'm curious, what are like the plausible something else's that... That one would think about for this topic
1: yeah great question um and before i even get to that i want to note that like uh the results that i just summarized are not psychotic psychosis specific mm. um, so there's there's a whole literature on cannabis use and its later life consequences and right. I, it's In the epidemiological kind of observational world, uh, almost all of it is bad news. Mm -hmm. So you find that folks who use cannabis earlier are not only at risk for psychosis, but they're also at higher risk for depression, anxiety, other substance use problems. Uh, They're showing uh, lower IQ, uh, cognitive impairment. They are going less far in school. They're acquiring less prestigious jobs. They're winding up in career paths with lower income. Um, So not cannabis specific, but of course the kind of fundamental question that we need to be asking ourselves is, is this a direct result of cannabis use or is this something else? And so some of those something else's, um, one that I think about is it's very well established that rates of childhood adversity are elevated among individuals who go on to smoke cannabis, particularly uh, at great length and particularly early in life. Uh, And we know that different types of childhood adversity, exposure to, say, maltreatment, domestic violence, uh, neighborhood crime, all of these things are kind of globally associated with both poor mental health, as well as kind of cognitive problems, and probably worse chances later on in life. Uh, And then another potential factor is genetics. Um, So we know that Uh, genetic risk of uh, cannabis use and genetic risk of psychosis are to some level correlated, Mm. um, suggesting that genes responsible for uh, contributing to risk of one of these uh, phenotypes, one of these um, outcomes uh, are also perhaps contributing to uh, cannabis
0: use. So so to clarify that is the idea that Um, it's possible or or actually that we know that there are genetic risk factors that have something to do with making your brain more likely to develop something like psychosis and make you more likely to develop a substance use problem with cannabis or something else.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's what the results of those genetic correlation studies seem to suggest. Um, Whether that is mediated by uh the brain in other words like there are you know genes that are uh, having a, a kind of causal impact on on brain structure and functioning i think is a little less clear um, it could be for example that you have certain genetic variants that are just correlated with being you know raised in certain environments uh, and we could see the correlation arrive arising, arising for sort of those types of reasons mm-hmm. um, but but yes, there, there, there does seem to be at least a possibility that there are uh, there's kind of what we call genetic uh, pleiotropy, which is the idea that there are genetic variants that are increasing risk for both of these uh, these phenotypes these these outcomes
0: at the same time. Mm-hmm. I see, and and that's pretty common, right? So when we say that a gene is pleiotropic, we mean that that it does a number of things basically, and you know it's very natural for people, especially non. Genetics people to think about, like, you know, particular genes having very sort of specific and nuanced yes. effects. But in reality, most of them do lots of stuff that affects many aspects of our lives.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, and you can find genetic correlations between anything. Um, you can, it, it's really a question of magnitude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. The, the, it, it's, it's very difficult to draw a straight line from kind of the current state of the knowledge between like specific genes or genetic variances and these outcomes. Um, but at least from the genetically informative studies that we have, they're at least raising this as a, a strong possibility that we should consider because if the link between cannabis use and psychosis is due to shared genes or any of these other kind of unmeasured third factors. It means that, uh, you know, any kind of policy change, any kind of clinical intervention that's targeting cannabis use is really not going to move the needle on psychosis prevalence mm-hmm. uh, whatsoever.
0: I see. So, this is really a classic case of, you know, is this correlation or causation? We've got a strong and consistent correlation between early cannabis use and psychosis across many studies, but we've also got many potential many plausible confounding factors, which are just difficult to control for. I know that one way that is often powerful for teasing apart some of this stuff when we're thinking about genes and environment and all of these types of things are twin studies, which is the type of study that I think you did. So can you explain what twin studies are for people and what they're generally good for?
1: Yeah. So twin studies have a lot of different uses, but the, the reason that I really love twin studies uh, is because when you're tackling these types of questions, um, it's kind of a very, very specific type of research question that is, is kind of forms the basis of my research career. So they are, they are questions, uh, you know, concerning the relationship between an exposure and an outcome, where you can't really rely on experimental results because either it's unethical to do it in humans or it's somewhat uninformative to do it in animals. And then you also can't really rely on just straight individual level observational results because of this problem of residual confounding. Um, And so the the fact that you can't rely on experimental results suggests you you have to turn to observational data in one way or another. Um, But the way people traditionally do that is uh, they, you know, follow a cohort of individuals they try to think about, they try to come up with a list of potential alternative explanations for the associations they're seeing. So for example, you know, I mentioned, you know, this the possibility that, um, you know, cannabis use and mental health outcomes could could come down to the fact of, or it could come down to kind of shared roots and increased exposure to some kind of childhood adversity. So if I'm running my observational study, I might go ahead and try to measure that. I might try to develop a measure to get an, a sense of to what extent the participants in my study are exposed to domestic violence or maltreatment in the home. And then I can enter that measure into my statistical models and I can say, well, I've controlled for that and I'm still seeing my relationship. So I know that this particular thing uh, isn't responsible for the association that I've observed. Problem with that though, is that, you know, if we sat here, Nick, the two of us, I bet could probably come up with a list of at least 15 to 20 reasonable, plausible, and perhaps even data-driven alternative explanations. So we could create a very long list of measures, of constructs, of things that people in these observational studies would kind of have to go in, develop a measure for, administer that Mm -hmm. measure, collect the data, and add it to their statistical models.
0: And at the end of the day, you really are just guessing. You can't make a complete list. That's right. The
1: list is always going to be incomplete. And then there's a further problem, which is that if you add enough covariates into your model, whether they're super important or not, eventually your main effect is gonna dwindle down to zero. Um, That's sort of a statistical certainty because you're just gonna be removing bits of variance from your your sort of explanatory pie piece by piece by piece, and eventually there will be nothing left. So the uh, kind of beauty of twin studies is that they introduce a set of uh, controls into your models without you having to go out and measure or explicitly include anything at all. Mm-hmm. So, twins are born uh, at the same time. They are born into the same families. They live in the same house most of the time. They live in the same neighborhood. They go to the same school. Um, and in the case of monozygotic twins or identical twins, they also share 100%, 100% of the same genes. Mm-hmm. So what you can do if you understand twin modeling is you can uh, kind of take your, um, your research question and rather than ask, is it true that people in my unrelated sample of the general population, is it true that people in that sample who use cannabis more frequently are more likely to experience psychosis? I can ask in the case of twins, if you have a twin that's using more cannabis than their co-twin, is that the twin who's more at risk for a psychotic illness? And asking that question is actually a lot more powerful and informative than the first question, because when you're asking the second question, you're holding this whole suite of, of co- potential covariates constant across mm-hmm. your twins because they share just so much in common.
0: Yeah. So, so I guess the idea is, If you look at data from enough pairs of twins, let's just say that you're looking all at identical twins. So they all share the same genome for each pair. They're all growing up in the same household. um, There's a bunch of environmental factors that you don't even need to measure directly, but you know that they're going to be pretty well shared. You know, Obviously they were in the same womb, born to the same family, all of this Uh stuff. And if you've just got enough of those twins and you're measuring in this case, say cannabis use and psychosis, if you're lucky and a good enough number of those pairs of twins uh, dissociate, such that like one of them uses more of the substance than the other one, you can now sort of disentangle the effect of that one thing, knowing that you're pretty well controlling for genetics and and as many environmental factors as you could possibly control for in a in a study like this.
1: That's right, and I just want I want to offer one caveat with this,
0: which is that even a a,
1: a co-twin control design, you're not controlling for everything, right? Mm-hmm. So if if any of your listeners or viewers are themselves twins, you know they will know that even twins, even identical twins, will differ from one another in myriad different ways. Um, they will have slightly different life experiences. They might have different personalities, you know, different IQs, different make, make slightly different friend groups. Kind of the the whole nine yards. Um, but what you what you can know, at least from a twin study, is that you're you're holding this one important set of covariates constant, and when you observe a within twin difference, the uh, kind of explanatory universe for that difference has shrunk considerably. Mm-hmm. So it's either you're observing a causal effect of your exposure in this case cannabis, or you're observing an, an effect of one of these what we call non-shared factors on which twins conceivably differ and what you can do in a a twin context also is if you have a very strong suspicion as to what another uh, important non-shared factor might be you can introduce that as a covariate into your models Mm -hmm. and that's a lot easier and more practical to do than my first example because again the the universe of potential confounds and explanations is significantly smaller Mm -hmm. So an an example of that, that I'll give to make that a little more concrete is like in a lot of my research, I will, I will co-vary for other substance use to make sure that I'm capturing the the effects of cannabis specifically. So I might introduce into my models controls for twin differences in alcohol use or, uh, nicotine being kind of the two most common other substances.
0: I see. I see. So before we get to the results of your twin study, um, I think one important thing to say up front is so, so you've had this sort of, um, relatively long history of uh, a pretty good number of observational studies being done, not necessarily twin studies, just observational studies to do with cannabis use in adolescence and psychosis. There's this link there. Some of them probably control for a very small number of possible confounds. Some of them probably control for a medium amount. Some of them probably went to great lengths to control for as many as they could think of. Is there any systematic relationship between what the end result tended to look like In studies with a lot of controlled variables versus those with a few
1: yeah that's a great question um and i'm not entirely sure i know the answer for the cannabis and psychosis literature specifically but i i can say i've been working on a paper reviewing the literature on um, cannabis and cognitive ability and then cannabis and educational outcomes recently And a a very common pattern that you do see um, that people will identify in review articles or any kind of um, summation piece is that a general pattern is the more covariates entered into the models, the smaller the effects become, which uh, can point, like we've been saying, to the fact that this is not actually a a simple causal relationship that we're looking at. But on the other hand, you know, I mentioned earlier, Mm Any model you've got, if you add more covariates, you're kind of taking away uh, unexplained variant. You're, you're, you're going to kind of see that effect no matter what. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: um, so re- yeah, it really is impossible to get to a, a firm, firm conclusion.
1: Yeah, it's certainly difficult from the, um, from the kind of individual level of epidemiological observational mm-hmm. tradition. I think the best you can do is you can select a few very important covariates to rule out a few very sort of salient or obvious alternative Mm -hmm. explanations. Mm -hmm. But like we were talking about earlier, there's always the possibility that there's a, there's a, something uh, you didn't think about, something you didn't consider, right? Yeah.
0: Okay. So I think this brings us to your study. So, so what was your study? Uh, how, how did you set it up? And why did you do it the way you did it, given everything that we've discussed so far?
1: Yeah. So I, I have actually a, a few papers now that kind of follow this general strategy. Um, so I was analyzing data from an observational, uh, uh, but longitudinal twin study that was conducted at the University of Minnesota. It's called the Minnesota Twin and Family Study. And so, what the Minnesota Twin and Family Study did was they recruited kind of at the genesis, it was three cohorts of twins uh, in adolescence. Uh, They asked them to report on their uh, cannabis use uh, over the past year, and they did that at multiple times throughout adolescence. Uh, And then in adulthood, they conducted a bunch of assessments, looking at twins' mental health, looking at their cognitive ability, looking at their socioeconomic uh, attainment and achievement. Um, And one of the measures that I thought was particularly interesting, given this controversy about uh, cannabis and psychosis, is they administered a a measure of uh, what's called psychoticism, which is sort of like taking that psychosis construct we talked about, but putting it on a, a continuum. Uh, because fundamentally, that's what psychosis is. It's something that's kind of present to a uh, lesser or greater greater extent across the population. And of course, in the clinical world, we sort of try to find a, a cut point to segregate people into individuals who would probably benefit from uh, clinical attention and treatment versus those who are probably okay without that. Um, so I, I sort of took these collections of measures. I had kind of cannabis use frequency and number of uses in adolescence and psychoticism in adulthood. And I, uh, I analyzed it two different ways. So I asked first the question of, well, do we see in our data, this same, uh, relationship that all these other epidemiological studies are reporting, wherein twins who are using more cannabis are as adults also scoring higher on our measure of psychoticism. And then I wanted to take it a step further, and I wanted to actually exploit kind of the twinness of the data. And so I did what's called a co-twin control analysis, which is where I I look within the individual twin pairs. And of course, I'm I'm aggregating across all of them. But within each individual twin pair, I'm basically asking the question, well, is it the case that the twin who's reporting using more cannabis is also scoring as more psychotic than their co-twin? because that takes into account this kind of wide range of control variables that we keep
0: uh, alluding to. Hmm. And when we're thinking about this study, can you say a little bit more about the cannabis itself? Do we know... You know, to what extent is this self-reported data versus um, the, the usage being measured in some independent fashion? And yeah. do we know anything about like you know, the THC content or the type of cannabis being consumed or is it just
1: unknown? Great question. So it, those two things are unknown. So they're, that, that's, a, that's a limitation of this study, uh, certainly, is that we don't have objective measures with which to kind of verify the twin self-report. We're sort of relying on them to be honest reporters of use um and uh we don't know anything about thc concentration but what i will say we we uh probably can assume with a reasonable degree of certainty is that the cannabis that these twins were using is probably just slightly less potent than a lot of the cannabis being consumed today because studies that have looked at changes in cannabis potency over time find generally speaking uh, an almost linear increase in thc content as time goes on Mm -hmm. So those, yeah. are, those are like two important things, I think, to keep in mind as we discuss the results of this study. And I'm happy to also talk about how that influences kind of how I think about
0: these findings in future directions. Okay. Well, can you uh, walk us through the, the basic results of what you found?
1: Yeah. So it was pretty simple uh,
0: at, at its core. So when we
1: looked at the uh, the individual level, which means when I ran my analyses in my, my sample and I kind of ignored the twinness of the data. I treated them essentially as individuals, but nested within family. Uh, I saw kind of that typical relationship that everyone else reports. Uh, So in this case, it was the twins who were using the most cannabis in adolescence. They were also kind of as a a group or across the spectrum, uh, because I was treating them both as continuum. Uh, They were reporting kind of the most psychotic like symptoms uh, as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, fit nicely in with what folks had already shown.
0: Yeah, you, re- you replicated previous results and that's exactly what you would expect, right?
1: That's a, that's right. Yep.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah,
1: because the literature has been pretty consistent on that point uh, up until this point.
0: Um,
1: so then I went into kind of my co-twin control analyses and looked at whether it was the case that I also observed this within twin pairs. And uh, when I went to that level, it, uh, it turned out that the Kind of uh, the, the cause the estimate for the causal effect of cannabis, or at least the estimate for the effect of cannabis on psychosis controlling for the twins level of cannabis exposure was just about zero.
0: <laughs> I see. So in, in other words, if cannabis was the driver of psychosis, you would expect that when you find examples of twins where one is using cannabis more than the other one, then you should see a higher rate of psychosis in the twin using more cannabis than the one using a little bit of cannabis. That's right. At least but a higher not... a higher
1: score on our measure a higher of psychosis,
0: score. but yes. But you did not see that.
1: That's right. So at least on average across the board, twins who reported using more cannabis were scoring just as highly on our measure of psychoticism as twins who were using less cannabis. So that sort of flies in the face of this Hypothesis that it's actually the cannabis exposure in adolescence that is causing uh, psychotic symptoms and psychotic illnesses that that uh, stick with people for most of their their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. And because we're talking, at least for a subset, about identical twins, does that point to um, at least point to somewhat the idea that there could be some shared th- that, that, that has, this does or doesn't have something to do with genetics.
1: Yeah, so the, the sort of two explanations remaining to us given these findings um, would be that the association is due either to uh, shared genetic liability, um, so genes that predispose people to use cannabis and also to psychosis or at least psychotic-like symptoms, um, or it's something to do with uh, shared environmental factors. So it could be, again, kind of harkening back to that possibility that I raised earlier, it could be greater exposure to childhood diversity. Uh, It could be, you know, uh, socioeconomic status related, Um, could be kind of myriad other factors. So we didn't dive too deeply into figuring out, um, you know, what kind of is responsible for this association, given we've ruled out the causal effect um but i i you know i do think that could be potentially interesting work in and of its own in mm-hmm. and of itself but what we really tried to do with with this paper was uh get at whether there's really a strong case for believing that if i reduce people's exposure to cannabis i'm also going to improve their mental health
0: mm-hmm. and at
1: least the results of this particular paper suggest that that is not the case
0: so Can you give us a sense for the the size of the data set here? Was this this a relatively large number of twins that you were able to look at?
1: Yeah, so the total sample size was um, 1,544. So we had the psychosis measure available in two out of our three twin cohorts. Um, So I've previously published uh, a separate paper looking at a more diverse uh, range of mental health outcomes and other outcomes, which was slightly larger than this one, um, just because I was able to combine data across the three. Um, So it's, uh, it's certainly a decent sized sample. uh, And we had pretty good variability across both of our, our uh, relevant measures. Um, But of course, it also does pale in comparison to uh, say these large like National Registry studies, which are, um, you know, often entire populations of small Scandinavian countries. So there is that. Um, but of course, the, the primary advantage is that those studies can't kind of tease apart causality in the same way that we were able to here.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so to summarize again, basically, if your study holds true, then we, we could ask the question, if you have two twins, two identical twins, and one of them starts to smoke pot when they're a teenager and one of them does not, the one that does start smoking pot will not be at greater risk for psychosis, assuming these results hold. That's right. What would it look like? So how, how definitive do you think a study like this is? Is Are there any ways that you maybe could explain the data in a different way?
1: Yeah. So one of the major weaknesses of a study like this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a single... I mean, it's, it's three cohorts, but they're all kind of coming from the same place at the same point in time. So we always have to worry a little bit about generalizability. And I, I mentioned earlier that there's some good research out there suggesting that the, uh, the THC levels and kind of the general potency of cannabis products is increasing over time. And so I think one major concern is even though we don't see any relationship here, uh, these were individuals, these were participants who were using cannabis Uh, You know, predominantly in the 1990s and early 2000s. Mm. And so it's possible now that we are, you know, a decade or two away from that, uh, that uh, we might get a slightly different pattern of results if we're looking at adolescents, teens who are using cannabis that is stronger Uh, And then there's also literature out there suggesting that among teens or among people who use cannabis products, uh, their frequency of use is increasing Mm. relative to what it was, uh, you know, years or in this case, decades ago. Uh, So, one of the things I'm actually very keen to do is to uh, try to replicate these results in different samples. So there's a Uh, twin study out in Colorado that uh, is designed in a way that's very similar to uh, data I've worked with from Minnesota. So I'm currently in the process of uh, kind of rerunning some of these models in their data to see if they generalize to a different state with a different cannabis legalization status. Mm. And then there's a, there's a large nationally representative cohort study called the adolescent brain and cognitive development study, which, um, is just collecting data on a nationally representative sample of U.S. teens right now. And so once those teens are fallen into adulthood, I think it'd be really interesting to look at their cannabis exposure and how that relates to uh, later outcomes, because uh, this cohort also has a subset of twins, which would let me uh, kind of repeat the analyses that I did in in the paper that we're discussing right now. Mm
0: -hmm. Did this result surprise you or were you expecting to maybe see this?
1: So this particular result actually didn't surprise me, and the reason it didn't surprise me was because I had just finished writing a separate paper, which was looking at the relationship between cannabis exposure in adolescence and, uh, like I was saying, a kind of different set of mental health outcomes, cognitive ability, and uh, socioeconomic outcomes. And so the results of that paper um, mirror this one pretty well in that we looked at um, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, antisocial personality disorder, and drug use disorders. And we saw pretty much the same pattern as we did in this paper, which is to say, yes, in the general population, cannabis use associated with increased risk of these bad outcomes. But when you look within twins, the differences are are no longer significant or drastically reduced.
0: Hmm. So that's interesting so you, so you've seen this not only for psychosis or psychotic like symptoms but for all of these other things as well. That's right. And I guess you know I could imagine you know there's a lot of people that would probably hear that and go like well yeah of course you know we we all know that um, you know many people would say themselves you know, we all know from experience that, you know, that relationship was dubious. These people are all just self-medicating. They're actually using the cannabis to help treat their mental health symptoms. So it's in some sense, the opposite of what, what others were concluding. Sure. Do you you think that's a reasonable conclusion? Like, would you conclude from your studies that there's no kind of mental health risk for adolescents if they start consuming cannabis? Yeah. So, uh, the,
1: the sort of, Theoretical model you're evoking with with uh, that notion of self-medication is what we would call reverse causation, right? So it's not that cannabis use causes mental health problems; it's that if you're experiencing mental health problems, you might be trying to alleviate them somewhat by smoking cannabis. And so that is uh, one of those sort of alternative explanations for these associations that we see, in addition to the idea that they're just they're they're caused by um, unmeasured, uh, third variables that people haven't identified. Um, and so my work doesn't itself address the possibility of reverse causation. I think it fits anecdotally with certainly individual patients that I've treated or encountered in the world. Um, And it's one of the reasons why i think longitudinal data that answers this question is so important because Mm -hmm. another limitation of uh the research i've done is that we we don't actually have baseline measures of um psychoticism in these cohorts Mm -hmm. so i think it would be really interesting to see is it the case that uh you know twins who are showing some of these signs of very early onset psychotic or psychotic-like experiences, I think it'd be interesting to see if they are the ones who are more likely to, to use cannabis, because I think that would speak to your mm-hmm. your question, Nick.
0: Um, I think an- another thing worth talking about here is, you know, your results are very interesting, and basically you're not finding evidence for a causal link between adolescent cannabis use and the development of psychosis. But couldn't someone argue, well, okay, it's not an across-the-board thing. It's not that the cannabis use is kicking up everyone's ability to develop psychotic like symptoms, but perhaps it does in a sub a sub-slice of the population that has particular, say, genetic vulnerabilities to developing that's- schizophrenia. And that's driving all of the other effects that people see in, in the other studies. Is that possible?
1: Yeah. So that's it's a it's an interesting argument because that's that is one that is often made. Um when uh, folks are trying to defend this narrative that cannabis causes psychosis. So it it, it might not cause it in the general population, we'll say, but it's possible. There's a a subset of particularly vulnerable people who are going to be really dramatically affected by it. And I think to some extent that grows out of this observation that if you... Uh, have a diagnosed psychotic illness, you're, I think, more likely to experience psychotic symptoms if you do use cannabis-like products. So I I think that's partially maybe where this this story comes from. Um, What I can say about that narrative is it's, it's really hard to empirically disprove, right? Because if you're not naming a specific vulnerability factor. Mm
0: -hmm. You can always say that there's some other vulnerability.
1: Right. And it's probably, to be fair, it's probably a confluence of different factors. It's, Mm -hmm. I think, very unlikely that it's just one singular vulnerability factor that would account for uh, kind of these differential effects that people hypothesize. Um, but like I'm saying, it, it's, it's hard to empirically disprove because if I pick a particular vulnerability factor and I look at it and I see whether that holds true, you can say, well, you that, that wasn't the vulnerability factor that I was thinking about or I would have measured it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we did a little of that in the, the paper that we're discussing, which is we, um, we had genetic data on all of our participants. And so we use that mm-hmm. data to calculate what's called a polygenic risk score. So essentially, it gives a, a kind of crude estimate of a person's uh, genetic risk to a particular condition. So in this case, we looked at genetic risk of schizophrenia, and we kind of calculated this value, this risk score for each of our participants, and we used that variable to ask the question: uh, You know, is it true that um, you know cannabis seems to interact with this genetic risk measure to create particularly um, you know, large numbers, uh, or, or particularly significant elevations in psychotic symptoms in these, these genetically vulnerable individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this particular study, we found that the answer was no, the, the interaction term wasn't significant.
0: I see. Okay. So, so not only do you have a twin study where, you know, because you're dealing with twins that they have, shared genomes, but you actually had some genetic data. So you were, you were able to look at some genetic data for them. And for each person, you have a score, perhaps not unlike something that you might get on a 23andMe or, or a service like that. That's right. It kind of tells you what their risk for uh, schizophrenia was. And you were asking the question, okay, we don't see a relationship between cannabis use and psychosis across the board, across all the twins. Mm-hmm. But if you then pull out the twins that have a particularly high schizophrenia risk score from the genetics data that you had, do they have this? And you're saying you also did not observe the relationship there. That's right. Got it. Um, and, and what I want to get across probably to
1: your, your viewers, and obviously folks can go ahead and read the article themselves if they're interested, but we, we really tried our hardest to find the relationship that, um, I guess the, the pro cannabis causes psychosis camp would want us to find. So I did sort of sensitivity analyses looking at, you know, only the twins who reported using the highest levels of cannabis, or only looking at the twin pairs with the highest levels of cannabis discordance Mm -hmm. to, to really see if, you know, if there's a really substantial difference in cannabis use, then do we see this effect? Um, we look at this, this, this interaction with a genetic vulnerability factor, kind of the best one that we could identify given the state of literature so far. We didn't see an effect there. So it really seemed like no matter how we sliced our data, the evidence of a causal effect wasn't showing up. So that gives me a little more confidence in communicating this story to you and to the wider world.
0: Interesting, and you mentioned it earlier, but can you just say again a little bit more on what's next? What, what kind of uh, studies are you looking to do to follow up on this?
1: Yeah, so um, biggest questions I think are number one, can we ensure that this replicates across different samples? All of our participants came from Minnesota, was a predominantly white cohort, uh, recruited in the you know 80s, 90s um they're they're using cannabis in a particular way at a particular time and since that time we've seen uh kind of enormous changes in cannabis use just secular changes over time people are using in different ways they're using different products there are different potencies and even though the kind of overall prevalence of teen cannabis use in particular seems to be going down uh people who are using cannabis are tending to use it with a lot more frequency than they were mm. kind of back in the day. So I think it's really important to double check to see whether the results hold given these kind of contemporary changes in cannabis use that are occurring right okay. now. So those are those are sort of the next steps that I'm eyeing. Okay. Um, and then in particular, I'm also really interested to uh, not only investigate this cannabis and mental health connection, but I'm also uh, trying to do some follow-up work on uh, the relationship between cannabis use and socioeconomic outcomes in young adulthood. Uh, Because one of my findings that we we didn't really get a chance to discuss very much so far is that while there isn't much evidence to support a causal relationship between cannabis use and these mental health outcomes, we actually were seeing uh, patterns in our our co-twin control models that are consistent with a possible causal effect of teen cannabis use on adult socioeconomic outcomes. Mm. So we're seeing some evidence that twins who use more cannabis than their co-twins are doing less well, socioeconomically speaking, in terms of their education, their occupational status, and their income in young adulthood. Uh, So that is a, uh, finding that I'm keen to also follow up and see if that holds true across different samples and at different times.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so let's just say, you know, your results are published or they will soon be published. I think. Um,
1: these are, these are both published. Those articles okay. we're referring to
0: are out there. So, so the, so that's, that's fantastic. Congratulations. First of all, I know this is a lot of work. Um, Thank you. So you've got these two studies out there. One that says no, no, link that we can find between cannabis use and psychosis. And you've got another one saying also no link between cannabis use and these other uh, negative mental health outcomes. So I'm going to pretend I'm you know a cannabis retail executive of some kind right now. And I've got a few million dollars in the bank. And I say, great. There's scientific evidence that there's no problem with adolescent cannabis use. We let them buy cigarettes when they're 18. So we should be lobbying to decrease the legalization age for for cannabis or when you can buy it from 21 to 18. Do you think do you think that's a reasonable argument to make from the data that you've generated?
1: Yeah, interesting question. So I think it's reasonable to conclude based on the data I've generated that the link between the causal link between cannabis and mental health, if it exists, is not particularly strong. I hesitate a little bit when people talk about, uh, you know, extrapolating from these, these results to say that uh, early cannabis use in general is no problem, not something that we should not be concerned about Mm -hmm. and uh, the reason for that is because of these other findings that i mentioned which is that there does seem to be some evidence that there's a causal relationship between cannabis use and how well you're doing you know financially Mm -hmm. educationally occupationally uh, as an adult Mm -hmm. and Um, wouldn't
0: it it would be it would be bizarre would it not if there was no effect of any kind from heavy cannabis use during relatively early periods of, of life and brain development?
1: Yeah, uh, in, in some sense. Although, you know, I, I think, I mean, the, the story that I, I, I think the data are kind of converging on, or at least my, my sort of pet hypothesis, is that the uh, adult outcomes we're seeing that do appear to be related to cannabis use in a causal fashion are... Um, I'm not so sure that those are those associations are mediated by long-term changes in brain or neurodevelopment. Mm. I think it might be easier to just say they are long-term consequences of you using a bunch of pot when you're a teenager, right? Because if you are using a bunch of pot as a teen and you're kind of experiencing the typical short-term effects that we all know, is associated with cannabis use, you know, maybe it's kind of increased relaxation, decreased motivation. Um, I, I wonder if the simplest explanation is just that impacts your performance in school and that then impacts your kind of uh, educational and socioeconomic attainment later in life uh, and that these effects are not so much about cannabis exerting really dramatic effects on brain development. Mm. It's more about short term effects. Uh, that are so limited almost, in scope with long- term consequences.
0: I see. So, so that idea would basically be saying that and, and there's nothing you know intrinsically good or bad about this in any like ethical sense, but almost the cannabis use would be a marker of how you were choosing to spend your time.
1: And, yeah sort
0: of yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know if you're choosing to spend it on you know certain certain things and not certain other things, that's probably going to have some downstream consequence in terms of how uh, what these other outcomes look like.
1: Yeah, and and again, the reason I say it, right, is because when we look at the the behavioral outcomes that we would expect to really be yoked very closely to brain development, when we look at mental health and we look at cognitive ability, sort of the the repeated finding, uh, at least from my perspective, is when we do these causally informative studies, these twin studies, we're seeing small to nil effects. And that's not really consistent with this idea that cannabis has dramatic effects, on the brain and the way it's organized and the way it develops. Um, that's not to say now that there couldn't be a thresholding effect. I mean, this is this is again sort of pulling a uh, uh, ad hoc kind of alternative theory out of thin air. But you know, it could be at a particular level of cannabis exposure, the effects on the brain really do become noticeable, and we start to um, see effects that are mediated by a more sort of neural specific pathway. I can't disprove that with the data that I have available. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to follow up on these results. But I would say that what the literature seems to suggest so far is that cannabis, as it's generally used in the population of adolescents, doesn't seem to be exerting these really terrible uh, consequences on uh neural integrity,
0: or mental health. I see. Um, Well, you did mention something early on in the discussion that you've worked on that I'm completely, I haven't looked at any of these papers, so I really don't know what the answers are, I can guess maybe which direction they go in. You mentioned that you had worked with other, you've done other other research on other environmental variables that can um, affect affect life outcomes for people. Mm -hmm. One of those was environmental exposure to lead. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we could switch gears and you can sort of unpack for me what we know in that area.
1: Sure. Um, So the lead literature is a little bit different than the cannabis literature because with lead exposure, it's really hard to bring twins to bear on -hmm. this question. Um, Because, you know, your level of lead exposure is usually tied to the type of environment you find yourselves in. So whether that's because you're getting exposure through uh, lead pipes that need replacing, like in Flint, Michigan, or you're getting exposure due to uh, leaded gasoline products, uh, which was the case in the cohorts that we were looking at because they were drawn predominantly from the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, members of a single family are gonna be pretty similar in their level of exposure to these kinds of pollutants. So it's difficult to find enough variability uh, across members of a family to apply some of these these methods that I'm so excited about. So our paper is looking at um, lead and air pollution tying those to mental health. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make too much use of twin data, but what we were able to do at least was uh, look longitudinally across time and just ask the simple question of, you know, is uh, greater exposure to these toxicants in adolescents associated with worse mental health in adulthood? And so in this case, we are, you know, not able to control for things using the sort of more powerful twin method, which is my preference, but we were at least able to do what folks typically do in these epidemiological studies, which is we were able to come up with a short list of potential alternative explanations. We were able to develop a list of, you know, robust covariates to enter internal models, and we were able to see that uh, at the end of the day, you know, even though we tried to, uh, you know, get the effect to go away by introducing controls for other Possible explanations. We found that this this relationship seemed to be pretty robust. Uh, That is, that there's a there does seem to be at least a small, reliable association between your level of exposure to these toxicants in early life and worse mental health as an adult.
0: You know, one of the things that I think is top of mind for a lot of people, just to sort of pull back or zoom out a little bit, is you know, for the last two ish years now, we've all been in this um, interesting new or newish environment that has to do with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. My understanding, it's only a cursory understanding, but my understanding is you know, mental health issues are basically getting worse across the board just because people have had lots of stressors introduced into their life based on how things have changed as the pandemic has played out. Can you comment on that generally? Is, is that actually what we're seeing are, are rates of depression, anxiety, other things actually going up? And can you maybe comment on you know, what your recommended coping mechanisms might be for, for the average person given your professional background?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, so I'm not super familiar with the literature that's coming out looking specifically at, at your question, which is, do we see empirical evidence suggesting that uh, mental health conditions are increasing over the course of the pandemic? I can think of papers I've come across that would support that. I think there have been at least a few that have reported you know, more, Um, you know, visits to the the psychiatric emergency rooms of local hospitals. Um, I'm sure there are others that have addressed this question, but they're not something that I've paid particularly close attention to. But what I can say is that what I have done a lot of research on is just the the prevalence of mental health problems in our society more generally. Mm -hmm. So this is even, this is pre-COVID. And what what this research does is it, of compares estimates of diagnosable mental health problems that we get from cross-sectional studies, studies where you're interviewing people about mental health at one time point, and longitudinal studies, which are the kind of studies that I work with most closely, where you're interviewing people about mental health repeatedly across the life course. And so what these studies tell us, and this is, again, pre-COVID, these are cohorts who, for the most part, I think, grew up again in kind of the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, When you look at assessments that are conducted at a single time point, uh, you get rates of uh, mental disorder that are about half that of what you get when you're asking people about mental health repeatedly over time. So in the cohorts that I work with that have these repeated assessments of mental health, you find that a staggeringly high percentage of people meet criteria for a diagnosable mental health problem at some point over the life course. So in the Minnesota Twin and Family study, I believe our rates are around 70%. In the Dunedin study, which I've used to look at some of these environmental toxicants, rates are as high as 80, 83, 85% of the population. Um, So when you think about COVID occurring against that backdrop, uh, for me, I I think about it as probably a, a global stressor that's taking Uh, An already highly prevalent problem, and yeah, probably, probably make kicking it up just a little bit higher. Um, As far as coping, that's a really good question. Um, I think what's been most useful for me personally is uh, getting back to some sort of exercise routine. Um, It's trite, it's basic, but it's true. I think uh, physical health has been huge in kind of maintaining mental health during the pandemic. Um, I think staying connected socially with folks as much as possible has been, again, huge. And as restrictions are lifting, uh, I found also, you know, so is my mood uh, because I'm finally able to like this Thanksgiving was able to get together with some friends and some family.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised that I'm a little surprised at how little emphasis, at least in the mainstream, you see, placed on just physical exertion as a mental health in your mental health toolkit. Yeah. And that's one of those
1: um those questions that we can study using these really strong empirical designs, right? There, there are plenty of randomized controlled trials showing pretty definitively that uh, exercise does have positive effects on mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. And you sort of mentioned that you know, even pre-COVID, um, at least certain mental health issues have been on the rise for quite a while. Do you, is, is that an area that you know more about in detail, like, for example, rates of depression, anxiety? What have those been looking like in the U.S. at least over, say, you know, a 10 or 20-year time period?
1: Yeah, good question. So my research doesn't deal so much with uh, kind of secular changes in incidence of disorders over time. But what uh, the research I've done does suggest is sort of the, the better that we measure mental health in our, in our research, uh, kind of the more prevalent we find that it is. And so what you notice in psychology and psychiatry over time is this, this shift in just how the field perceives these conditions and my hope is this trickles down to the general population Um, and honestly it could still probably do with a little bit more trickling i think within psychiatry and psychology but we we've sort of moved i think in the past couple decades from thinking about you know mental health conditions as these uh, these disorders that affect a small unfortunate subset of the population to uh, you know, the National Comorbidity Surveys of the 1990s, which returned the, at the time, very surprising finding that they affect roughly 50% of the U.S. adult population. Uh, to now, where we have uh, findings from these multi-decade longitudinal studies that are measuring mental health really closely, and doing it repeatedly over time suggesting that actually the proportion of the population that experiences a diagnosable, not diagnosable mental health problem is north of 70 80 percent um so i think public understanding of mental health has been changing and our understanding of what it takes to measure mental health well has changed what i'm less certain about is whether any of these changes reflect Kind of increases or decreases in mental health problems over time due to different factors, including COVID.
0: I see. So, so you would say that you don't know the answer to the. I mean, that it's difficult to answer the question. You know, when we look at rates of mental health issues today in the U.S., you know, to what extent is that us just getting better at finding and measuring things versus us just becoming actually more mentally unhealthy? today as yeah a person, I, think, of I think that's a, that's
1: that's always the question right so the the studies that are kind of informative to this point I you know I do know they're they're ones that are kind of applying uh, the same diagnostic or assessment procedure repeatedly over time and so those are the studies that you want to be you want to be looking at obviously to answer this question to see if the numbers are actually going up without a uh, underlying change in the the measurement system Um, And I I think the studies that are going to be most informative to that point are going to be studies that um, are following a nationally representative sample prospectively, rather than looking at rates of people going to hospitals or seeking psychiatric services or engaging with the mental health care system, right? Because you could certainly see secular trends in... um, people's willingness to enter psychotherapy or go see a psychiatrist or seek help without there being a corresponding change in the actual underlying rates of disorder. Hmm. So I think it's important to be able to tease those apart.
0: Um, well, the, the work that you've done is very interesting, Jonathan. Um, I think we covered a lot of good ground today. On the main topic we discussed of the relationship between adolescent cannabis use and mental health outcomes, is there anything Anything you want to say at the end to sort of tie things together, or point people to in terms of uh, places they can go to learn more?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so there are a couple different research groups uh, internationally that have been focusing on this question for years and years. Uh, one of them that I'm fortunate enough to be uh, affiliated with at the moment is the Minnesota Center uh, for uh, Twin and Family Research uh, at the University of Minnesota. Um, So we are using our twin data to answer important questions about the relationship between cannabis and later life outcomes. Also looking at alcohol exposure, uh, smoking use. Um, So lots of interesting findings kind of coming out from that group on a, a daily basis, but that could be a whole nother podcast episode. Uh, And then there are, of course, other um, groups that are also doing this work internationally. Um, And I guess I'd give a shout out to my graduate school mentors who have their own cohort of twins in the United Kingdom. So that's Terry Moffitt and Absalom Caspi at Duke University, and they do a lot of this work as well. So I would say folks are interested in um, learning more about uh, the state of twin research and its intersection with the cannabis world. I think those are two great places to start. And of course, you can always look me up on the internet, Google Scholar, um, Jonathan Schaefer. uh, And then I'm also on Twitter at John Schaefer, PhD. So you can always feel free to drop me a line there and happy to answer any questions I get.
0: All right, Jonathan. Well, thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. This was great.